morning, everybody. Nice to be here. You know, ever since I heard how Smith Wigglesworth passed out of this life, I've always thought it totally appropriate for a pastor to kick the bucket while preaching. (laughs) So I I guess I can tick this off my bucket list. It's not redundant. This little fellow is going to serve a good purpose during the sermon, so, so keep watching it. You know, it said that Jesus spoke a lot about money and the use of money, buckets full of lessons on money. And that's not true, actually. He used money often as examples. The reason for that is because money permeates life. It did in his day, it does in our day. So he often used examples which involved wealth and money, but he he didn't preach on the use of money that much. Yet, Jesus the Master did preach on the use of money, because money is an important ingredient in our lives. So I want to take what the Master said about money. That's why I've called the sermon the Master Class, a money master class. But I want to take just two texts, two times that he preached out of the relatively few times, and open up those two texts from the Gospel of Luke. Because I believe that if we apply these things, then we will find greater freedom in our lives and greater joy. And blessing will flow in freedom and joy as we apply what Jesus taught on the subject. So first turn to Luke 16, verse 13. Luke 16, verse 13. Jesus said this, No servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Money. I mean, it has no worth in itself, you know. It's just a silly little piece of paper with some pictures on it. How silly to think that we would serve money. You know, when I first started teaching on money, I used to hold up a 50 rand note. <laughs> that kind of says a lot about its, its real worth. Banking 101, Richard. Money is just a means of exchange and a measure of worth. That's all it is, a piece of paper. And we look back into Old Testament times, and we see how the people, they would create idols with their own hands. They'd make an idol, and then they'd bow down and worship it. And then we say, how silly, how archaic, how ignorant that people could do that. But what's the real difference when we make money and we become a slave? You cannot serve both God and money. Why would Jesus say such a thing? That we would, we would think of serving money to become the slave of money. Hmm. Do you think the non-Christian first world has money as its God? Do you think so? Well, we'll just consider a couple of things. How in Western culture generally, are people and their worth measured? How, do we, how, do, how does the world say one person is 
worth more than the other? Money. How much does that person earn? How much have they accumulated? What's their wealth index? Consider what kind of legacies people want to leave behind. Do they want to leave behind wisdom? Do they want to be, leave behind a growing, wonderful family? No, they want to leave behind money. Because money has become the measure of their worth. The God of the Western world. And, and think of how it's the wealthy nations that rule, is it not? It's the nations with lots of resources that are seen as the great nations of the world. Irrespective of the fact that they might never have produced anything of intrinsic real worth. And certainly not eternal worth. So, a harder question is, do we serve money? Is Jesus talking about us? That's a far harder question to kind of answer. So let me pose a few questions to help us. How do we use our money? You know, if you want to know what a person's real priorities are and what the real value system is, see what they're using their money for. It is a, a real acid test. Do we use our money to serve our needs or our wants? Do we use our money to bless others, to fund churches, to extend the kingdom of God? Or do we use it to set up a store for our own future? Or for our own desires? Do we worry more about not having money than we do about offending God? These are hard questions, huh? And, and it's so easy to get defensive. You know, when we when we are confronted with questions like this, it's it's the natural thing to say, oh, come on. get real, etc., etc., and then to try and prevaricate and find justifications. You know, funny thing is, poor people don't seem to have such a problem answering these questions. <laughs> they just don't. My gardener's name is Durban. I share him with a number of other folk in the congregation, both of whom are here <laughs> this morning. Well, I've taught Durban that uh, the best way to handle money is not to ask people for loans when he needs money, but rather set aside money. So when he comes and works for me on a Tuesday, I say to him, how much do you want from the money I pay him? He selects the amount, and I take the balance, and I put it in a little plastic envelope. That's his bank. And every Tuesday I say, Durban, do you see that your money is making babies again? <laughs> and, and, and he's learned to live with that as a really good way of, of managing it. But he, let me tell you, because I do this, I know what he uses his money for. Because it's to me that he then comes to say, can I have a thousand rand from the bank, please? Or whatever it is. Now what astounds me is, let me just tell you the things that he spent that saved money on over the last couple of years. The death of family members. He will come and ask for his own money so that he can go and organize the funeral and sort that out. His niece's sickness. 
his niece's child's sickness. The other day he came and said one of his family needed blood transfusions and he didn't ask to borrow money because he didn't have to do that anymore. He took his own money. His daughter came down from Zimbabwe. He wanted money so he could extend his shack. And then he wanted to save some more so he could buy a small generator to power the hairdryer so that she could make her living as a hairdresser in that part of the shack that he has. Not once over all that time have I seen him wanting to utilize his saving for things which were not for the betterment of his family. It's quite, quite stunning, really. Does he worship money? No, sir. No, he doesn't. He would have no problem answering these kind of, these kind of questions. Do you remember on September the 11th, 2001? Do you guys remember that date? When those airplanes flew into the World Trade Center? I remember I was sitting in my study in Parkmore, where, where our house was, and my son phoned me and said, Dad, switch on the TV set. And I switched on the TV just in time to see that second airplane. Shocking, shocking scenes. I could hardly believe what I was seeing. And the aftermath of that. But why did they target the Twin Towers? Why do you think? Why did those guys target the Twin Towers in New York? Any ideas? Because they believed that they were striking a blow at the God of America. It was the battle of the gods. The God that they worshipped. Opposing the God of the infidel. Of the enemy of the great Satan. Some seven years later, the, the God of that system was actually struck and the world went into a financial crisis. Now, nine years after that again, we're still there, really. We're still battling. People have lost jobs. The financial security of pensioners, many of us, is threatened because of the things that have been happening In a rather strange, almost macabre way, it's quite a good thing that these things are happening to us. Because it brings into sharp focus the question, who do I really serve? Where is my mind really focused? What do I worry about most? God or money? And it is a massively important question for this I believe, that it is only in serving God that we have freedom and joy. When we worry about money, we do not have freedom. And joy is robbed from our lives. And serving God is true freedom and true joy. So when we think about these questions and we're not perhaps happy with our answers remedy the situation? How do we turn from money to God? How do we learn the lesson that financial crisis can actually offer us? Well, perhaps by changing our orientation. Perhaps by consciously changing our orientation from getting to giving. From laying up treasures on earth to laying up treasures in heaven. 
Do you remember that young man called the rich young ruler? It's spoken about in Luke chapter 18. Came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that story? What did Jesus say to him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. You know, and we miss the point entirely when we read the story like that and say, oh, how unreasonable. How could he possibly expect a man to give up everything he had? I mean, that's unreasonable. Is he asking me to do that? Must I go and live in poverty? Must I go and live in China, you know, in the underground church and all that sort of stuff? And we get very defensive when we think things like that. But we miss the point of the story. The point of the story is the focus on what to do if we are serving mammon. The way to break it is to give. And he was using this extreme example like he always did. You know, he painted in black and white, did our master. You young man of great wealth, sell it all. Give it all to the poor. The way to freedom from bondage to money is to start giving generously. We also miss the point of the whole story when we don't see its end. Do you see how it ends? And then Jesus said to him, then come and follow me. So many of us don't get to follow him. We don't listen to the prompting of the still voice within our hearts because we're focused on the wrong things. We're worried about our futures and our money and our stores of value. But in serving him is freedom. You know that young man was offered the opportunity of a lifetime. How many men or women in Jesus' day were given the opportunity of following him? Joining that little band of followers who would go out and change the world. That's what Jesus offered him. Freedom to follow him. Jesus didn't want that man's money. And he certainly doesn't need our money. Honestly doesn't. But he does want us to be joyful followers of him. If we want to serve Jesus and not money, then we need to focus as he did on people and not on possessions, on eternity and not on equities, and on giving, not on getting. And in that is great freedom and great joy. Okay, Chris. Well, I get it. But how much should I give and to whom? Ah, funny you should ask. <laughs> now, it shames me to say, and I mean this sincerely, it shames me to say that the normal pastoral response to that, but fortunately not in this church, is as follows. Oh, but it's quite straightforward. For the word says you must give 10% of your gross income and you must give it to the church. Done deal. And then they quote Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, those of you who have had this preached in your face. I call it Malachi's mallet. <laughs> it goes as follows. 
Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. The whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I think I'm kidding. And I'm not going to mention the name of the church, but my, the church that my daughter goes to recently preached a six-week series on tithing with a focus on if you don't, you're cursed. And had a thing called the tithing challenge, which went as follows. Come on now, tithe for six weeks, and if God does not bless you abundantly for that, we will give you your money back. Yeah, you know, it, the first time I heard it, I didn't know whether I should laugh or cry. But it's true. It's happening around us. Now, he, interesting, Jesus had several things to say about money, as I've said. But you know, he had almost nothing to say about tithing. He mentioned it exactly once. And when he mentioned it, it was in the context of pronouncing woes upon the religious Pharisees of his day. He said this, Luke 11, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And what the advocates of tithing today say, is you see, Jesus said that they should have not neglected that either. So therefore he's saying it's good to tithe. Well, that's nonsense. The Pharisees were religious men who believed that righteousness in God's eyes came if they meticulously met the requirements of the old covenant. And tithing was a part of the old covenant. Jesus himself was careful to meet all the requirements of the old covenant. Jesus himself said to his disciples, unless your righteousness is greater than scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. For he was speaking to them at a time before he died, before he settled forever the requirements of the old covenant. You see, God's covenant with the Jews was stated over the centuries in seven iterations. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find seven times that he presents his covenant to his people. And on each occasion, he gives a sign that has to be obeyed. The signs were things like circumcision. You shall circumcise your sons. If you do that, you're obeying me, and people will know that you are in covenant with me. The temple and the temple worship and the coming to the temple three times a year was a sign of covenant that had to be adhered to to be part of that covenant. And tithing was a sign of covenant. Jesus is not endorsing the practice of tithing in our day. He was criticizing the legalists of his day because he said to them, 
You know what? You are adhering to the signs of the covenant, but your heart is not turned towards me. Your heart is not full of mercy and righteousness. We cannot substitute church for temple and then say Christians must bring 10% of the income into the storehouse of God, which is the church. Even although giving to the church is hugely important, we cannot base it on this. Or we would be subject to the same criticism that Jesus was giving to the people of his day. There's no more validity in trying to require our people to tithe than there is to instruct that they abstain from pork, circumcise their sons, or go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. So if Jesus didn't teach us to tithe, then what did he teach us concerning giving? Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, grain in Old Testament times and the times of the New Testament wasn't measured by weight, it was measured by volume. And people, the men, as well as the women, wore these robes. And so what they would do is they'd come to the grain merchant, especially the poor people who didn't have big bushels, etc., and they would sit cross-legged with their robes open in front, you know, like a sack. And the grain merchant would take grain from the, his store and pour it into their laps by measure. They would pay per measure. And they would do the best they could normally to try and cheat. So they would kind of hold the container at a slight angle so it looked like it was so full that grain was dribbling out of it and quickly pour that into their laps. And Jesus said, no, it's not going to be like that with you. It will be a full measure. And then, you know what, I'll press it down and so, to make space. And then I'll shake it until all the air between the, the grain is, is gone. And then I'll dip it into the bag again until it's flowing over. And then I'll pour it into your lap. Good measure, pressed down shaken together and flowing over. And then he said, for with the measure you give, so it will be measured to you. Very graphic. Very to the point. Very clear. Give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, it pains me to have to say this, but I need to. This is not a way to get a lot of money. This is not a divine Ponzi scheme. It's not. We don't give in order that we might get. But Jesus has taught us that if our, if our life is epitomized by giving, He will give it back into our lives. 
with abundance that we have more than enough to give again and again and again and to meet the needs around us. I haven't done it for a few years, but there was a time where I would regularly have a preaching workshop teach new preachers about preaching. And I use a particular sermon in that as an illustration of how not to preach. And it's called The Abundant Harvest. It's based on Matthew 13. Again, I won't tell you who the preacher was. But it went like this, you see. Matthew 13 says that the sower went out and he sowed his seed. And the seed, of course, is supposed to be the word of God, not money. The word of God, it says, Jesus says, that's the word of God, you say. And then some fell on good soil and a crop came up 30 or 60 or 100 times. So this guy actually says the following. So I've taught my family to do this. And my daughter, she keeps a little black book in her purse. And when she goes around, every time she gives something, she writes in a little black book. $10 here. $50 there. Then at the end of every month, she opens up a little black book and she adds it up. And she times it by 100. And she says, there, Lord, you owe me a million bucks. And it pains me to say these things, but they're real. These things are being taught in the church around the world, and it's shameful. This is not a way to get rich. It's a way to live in abundant giving. It's an orientation of life to which God responds with equal, if not greater, generosity. Giving is a key tenet of the Christian faith, is it not? Isn't it key to our faith? For God so loved the world that he what? It's a key orientation of our life, and it's the antidote to serving money. It's the only true antidote Give stuff away. That's how you break the bondage of money. You give and you give and you give. And it creates the potential for receiving. For the moment our heart is open, the door is open for God to bless us. And he does want to, you know, press down, shaken together and pouring over. For with the measure we give, we're open to receive. If you want the details of how much and to whom, then simply go home and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which gives a detailed and wonderful description of how you and I should be giving and the principles that should guide us. But here's the short answer for those of you who can't wait to get home and read those two chapters. The short answer is this. Give as generously as you positively can. Give as generously as you possibly can. Joyfully and without guilt or compulsion. And give first to your family. Ah, shocking you, eh? Give first to your family. Here's the kicker. And the church is part of your family. It really is. It is an extended family with joy 
without compulsion, without manipulation, without guilt. Give. And in that is great freedom. And in that is great joy. And in that is great blessing. Do you think Jesus was kidding when he said, and Paul records it for us in Acts, for our Lord has said, he, he, Paul says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wasn't trying to take up an offering when he said that. It's true. Let me end by just combining those two verses. verses chapter 16, verse 13, and Luke 6, 38. You can put them up on the screen again for me if you would. Just the two verses. You'd like to wake up there. To <laughs> Thank you. I know it's... You'll get another chance at the 10 o'clock. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, so it will be measured to you. I will now pass among you and take up a second offering. <laughs> I'm just, oh, just kidding. Just kidding. Amen. <laughs>